Our scripture reading today will be Psalm 77, 13 through 20. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwinds. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footsteps were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Well, if you've ever thought or maybe even said our preacher is all wet, that's never been more true than today. I'm soaked up here and loving it. I pray that I preach all wet every single week. Um, yay, God. While you're turning to John chapter 6, I want to tell you about a favorite married couple of mine. They were um, celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary. And at a punch bowl, a young man came up and met them, and uh, he said, I am just amazed. He said, both of my parents and my wife's parents divorced in our early childhood. What's your secret? And the husband didn't hesitate. He said, well, it goes all the way back to our honeymoon. We took a mule team down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and my wife's mule was just unruly. After the first mile, he just kept stalling until she finally jerked his head up, swatted him on the behind, and said, that's once. He said, we didn't go but a half mile later, and the mule started nipping at her legs, and she jerked his head around and said, that's twice. And then we went about another half mile, and he started bucking with her, almost went over the edge, son. And she reached under her petticoat, pulled out a pistol, and just shot him right there. I said, honey, you didn't have to kill him. And he said, I'll never forget, she turned around and pointed her finger at me and said, that's once. Young man said, did you ever make it to twice? He said, no, sir. (laughs) I'm sure some women will be using that on you husbands this week. I needed to laugh this morning, especially about marriage because it's been a tough week. Not just, not just, but not in my marriage, but in a couple that we counseled with who on Wednesday decided to get a divorce. They're not a part of this body of believers, but they are part of the body of Christ. And we have a very, very close connection with them. We did their premarital counseling. Many of you know Gil and I destroyed a marriage once. Buried a marriage once. And God in his mercy put that back together. And she and I, through his strength and some very intentional hard work, celebrated 31 years of marriage just last month. They got to see the picture of that. That's there on there somewhere. She insisted to kiss. I'm telling you, she's a kisser. But we found that outside of, um, I think it was a Cracker Barrel uh, on, when we were on vacation. And we just thought, wow, God, that is so cool. 31 years strong. And it really is. 31 years strong. I like to refer to that 31-year marriage as a priceless work of heart. And that's the title of a message that I hope to bring, Lord willing, next summer 
um, to talk to our church specifically about how much work it takes to be married. And it takes work. Those of you married, say amen. It takes work. Some intentional work of the heart. Rare, I think, are the marriages in this world that make it 20 years, let alone 50 or 60. One of the ways that uh, Gail and I recommend to every couple that we do premarital counseling with that they work on their marriages is literally at the end of their first year, no later than the second year, that they attend a Weekend to Remember seminar. It's a two-day seminar put on by Dennis Randy and his folks at Family Life that is phenomenal. There's one that's going to be taking place November the 22nd in San Antonio, Texas. Since Gil and I have been remarried, we have committed to attending at least one of those conferences every third year and doing some kind of marriage enrichment work literally every year that we're married. I'm curious, how many of you here have been married between five years and 20 years? Raise your hand. Five years and 20 years. Some of you don't want to admit to that, okay? Five years and 20 years. Okay, good. If I could, I would make it absolutely necessary, if you wanted to belong to the KCC Church of Christ, that you and your mate attend some kind of marriage retreat or take one class on marriage minimally every 10 years. I can't do that, nor do I want to, but I wish you would. Good marriages don't happen by accident any more than good football teams or good companies or good schools happen by accident. This weekend to remember, I believe with all my heart, is one of the best intentional ways to refresh a stale marriage, to resurrect a dead one, and to help a good one just get a little bit better. I believe with all of my heart, we don't know how to be married any more than we know how to speak Russian. If you've learned how to speak Russian here in America, somebody trained you how to do that, most likely. You probably were not raised in a Russian family here. Those are few and far between. But I really don't believe we, we learn how to do that without some mentoring, without some intentional teaching. And I think it's showing in our marriages. And so I'm encouraging us as a church, please, this year, those of you who are married, however you do it, intentionally work on your marriage at least as much as you work on your hair. At least as much as you clean your car. At least as much as you clean your house. I promise you right now, there are marriages in this room that are desperately in need of some intentional heart work. And this is a great, great opportunity to do that. And I just want to say on behalf of our elders, we're a little bit weary of dealing with marriage crises. So we're, we're, we're running ahead of that if we can to try to deal with marriage strengthening a little bit more than that. And so we're going to pay $150, your, your fee, to be able to attend this seminar if you will agree to go. The final deadline for the registration is three weeks from now, the first week of October. But we've got the sheet literally right out there, out the door. And while this is fresh on your heart, I'm hoping that some of you will make the commitment to go to San Antonio, Texas, to the Hill Country Hyatt, really tough place to have a marriage seminar, and that you guys will decide it's worth our marriage to invest a little money in it right now. We'll take care of the entry fee if you'll take care of the room fees. Now, we're also going to be orchestrating. That's a little pricey. I checked on it. It's about $135 a night for a room. So we're going to be getting some other room prices close to that that you can at least go to the seminar but be in San Antonio. We really don't want you driving back and forth because we want you to be there, especially on Saturday night, which is date night. But we're serious about this. 
We know marriages right now in our church need a tune-up desperately. We don't want to spend time dealing with those that crash and burn in the next six months or a year. Please be praying about that and put that on your calendar. Now, you probably can tell by the length of this notification, it's more than an announcement. It really is. It's a drawing of the line in the sand. It's enough. Enough. We need some preventative maintenance in our church family on seeing marriages go the distance. Amen? Okay. We're going to invest in that. All right. Here we go. We're starting a new series of lessons that I'm calling Follow. Just very simply follow. If you're not going to be able to be here, know that they're going to be online uh, and also available on CD. But really, it's so simple. If you've got a computer, just go to kcc.com and um, click on media, click on sermons, and then choose the one that you'd like to listen to. doesn't cost you a dime. Uh, that's the easiest way that we can get these lessons to you. And so if you're going to miss one of those, I want to encourage you uh, to take some time to listen in. This morning's lesson is entitled Prologue. Let's pray, and then let's see what God has to say to us today. Father, I don't thank you for just the excitement of seeing a new life in Christ birth today right before our very eyes. That someone chose to die to themselves and to live for you. It just matters so much. I'm grateful to be a part of anything that has to do with your son's name on it. But, Father, that's just so fun to literally be in that moment and see new life birthed into the world. So we are grateful, Father, that you've done that and we had a chance to be along for the ride. And, Father, now I'm asking you, in the wake of this young man who said, I am deciding to follow Jesus today, that we take a, a serious look at what exactly that means and today's just going to get us started, God, but I'm asking through the power of your spirit that you'll bless our time together, that truly you'll take this sack lunch of a lesson, that you'll break it and you'll mold it and you'll shape it and bless it so that it not only feeds us, but the Father is so strong to nourish us that it also means nourishment for those around us. Father, we lift up the first Christian church this morning, kind of our first cousins in the faith. We're grateful, Father, for their presence here in Kerrville, and we ask that you bless their breaking of the bread this morning, their preaching of the word, their singing of praises to you. And, Father, we pray that many, many more decide to follow Jesus through their efforts to be Jesus in the world. Thank you so very much for coming to be with us today. It's in his name that we pray and everyone said. How many here like to read? Don't raise your hand. Did you like to read? Now, I do want to see this. How many of you read the prologue? Really? I didn't think there'd be that many that would read the prologue. Well, I, I, I do sometimes. It just kind of depends. If I get through kind of like the first paragraph and I just see it's just another celebrity who's been asked to kind of uh, pontificate about why they think this particular writer is so incredibly awesome, uh, I usually skip it. But I love the prologues that really kind of give you a little bit of an insight as to why this writer is writing this particular book at this particular time in his life. I love to hear a little bit of the history that's behind that. And that really is why this lesson today is called the prologue. I'd like to share with you, if I can, for just a moment, what's been behind the lessons both that I have preached literally for the first day that I was commissioned to preach for this church and where we are intending to go over the next couple of eight weeks. Every one of these lessons has had a very intentional purpose to them. And they really revolve around two things. Number one, I want you to know what I believe is God's heart on some key matters 
in the scripture. And number two, I want to give you a chance to take a peek at my heart. I think both of those are very, very important as we get to know each other as a church and as I point us to what I see God calling us to be as a church of Christ here in this community. I started with this. God wants us to have life. Now, that's not just a message in Scripture. It is a central message to Scripture. And I think sometimes I forget that, that God wants me to live, not just settle on existing Not just getting by, not just kind of muddling through. No, he wants me to live. It's so central that Jesus wanted to make sure that those who were following him heard this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just my message. It's who I am. Now, if if you want to have life, he says, no one can come to the Father except through me, life. There's a lot that Jesus says about life, especially in the book of John. And so I felt it really important for us to be reminded that's really what Jesus is after. He wants you to live. And we looked at some very specific things that Peter says, incidentally, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, if you're serious about wanting to live, actually, here's exactly what he says, he who would love life and have great days. That's me. (laughs) I want to have great days and I want to have a great life. Well, he spells out three principles that we looked at in the very beginning. He says, remember, it matters what you say. Remember, it matters what you do. And remember, it matters what you're pursuing. What you say, what you do, what you pursue. All of that matters if you're serious about life. If life words come out of your mouth, you'll be amazed at how much life surrounds you. If you make life choices based on the one who is life, you'll be amazed at the kind of life that you have. If you are pursuing, interestingly enough, peace... The Prince of Peace specifically. You're going to be amazed at how much peace is in your life. Not that it's serendipitous. That's really not what the Bible says. It's a choice. Some of you right now are not living. You're not. Life pretty much stinks, you would say, right now, if you had to surmise how you feel and think about life. Well, the Bible says that's not so much based on your circumstances as it is your choices. And I love that. Because it doesn't mean I'm not not limited to my circumstances and having life there. That I can choose life right where I'm at with whatever's going on. I felt that was a huge place to get started in this journey together of figuring out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now those are principles, I think, of what life means. But the foundation of that is in the gospel. And so that's where we went next. I loved having Mark Johnson come to be with us for this. You remember the guy that was the potter? He helped us visually see what we have heard preached and taught so many years. And I think for me, cemented forever in my life that Jesus was formed for greatness and fired for greatness and broken for greatness and restored for greatness. But so am I. I was formed for great things. I was fired for great things. I was broken for great things. And oh my, I've been restored for great things. And we got a chance to visually see that together as a family. But it was more than just a a neat way to do a couple of sermons. I wanted for us to, to really make that a foundation because that is the core of what this new life is all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And regardless of how our methods change over the years, and they do have to change because the world around us is changing, and we've got to connect that message to them. Those methods may change, but this message will never change. The death, 
burial, resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ is the single most first important truth Paul says over and over again in his Gospels, in his letters, that we need to nail down and continue to preach to a lost world. So I think that was a pretty good place to start as far as preaching goes here at the KCC Church of Christ. But the cross and the resurrection aren't the only amazing things about God. I want us to just take a tour on on, on what he's doing in Scripture, at least in a few places, in such a way that maybe some of you would actually say, God did what? He's done some amazing things that we looked at. Remember, he spoke. Now, these are more than just history lessons. They were an attempt to see, well, if he spoke, does he still do that? And we found through Scripture, yes, he does. He not only spoke, he still speaks. He not only ran, he still runs. He not only whistled, he still whistles. He not only rested, he still invites us into his rest, to rest with him every single week. And yes, he still celebrates. You guys did a great job while ago of, of, of saying, yay, Chase, all right. But that was pitiful compared to what was going on in heaven. Oh, God says, I celebrate every time one sinner repents, every single time. And so we celebrate because he loves to celebrate. I wanted us to get an eye full of him. And here's why. What you behold is what you worship. And then ultimately it's what you become. And so I want us to just get a big, oh, eyeful of what God is and who God is and what he's doing in our world. And so that's why the last lesson series that we looked at is so important to me. Here I am to worship. We saw in that particular series of lessons, it's not a matter of will you worship. The reality is you are worshiping something. God would love for you to worship him because life is there. All those other deities are just little deities. If you want a little life, go ahead and worship them. But God said, if you want a big life, come here, worship me. That blesses him, but it benefits you more than anything else. And so we look a hard what do, what do you mean worship? What, what does that look like for us as we turn our eyes and our hearts towards you? When I look in the text and I see people who have seen God, Almost every single one of them, whether they thought about it or not, are getting low because he's so high and mighty. They're worshiping. But also, every time I look in Scripture, someone's got a choice after that moment's over. And it boils down to three things. One, write that off as just an experience and go on about your business. Two, Maybe be an admirer of that moment or that time. Or three, decide to follow that God. Now, the first or the last two are positive choices. The first one's pretty much a negative one. And a lot of people, when they saw Jesus, walked away, saw some miraculous things, but they decided, no, nah, lunatic and a liar. I'll pass. I've got other places to go, other things to do. And then there were two other responses that we see all throughout the Gospels that I think can be surmised in this. You had those who were admirers and those who were followers. And I want to show you this morning as we step into this series of lessons, those are two very distinct groups of people. And we see that distinction drawn out in John chapter 6. When we come to John chapter 6, Jesus has made quite the impression on the world to the point that literally thousands are coming to him. Uh, I got a good friend of mine. Carlin, where are you? There he is. 
Y'all don't know Carlin Cox. They didn't know Jesus either. If I told you Carlin Cox was from Muleshoe, Texas, would you expect much from him? No. I really don't even know where Carlin Cox is from. But just hearing those words, Carlin Cox from Muleshoe, Texas, okay. <laughs> when you heard the name Jesus from Nazareth, Texas, or Nazareth, not Texas, <laughs> the whole world is Texas, right? But when you hear the name Jesus from Nazareth, I promise you no one said, really? From Nazareth? No. They said, Muleshoe? And yet thousands of people were flocking to him. But here's why. Wouldn't you flock to see somebody who could empty a hospital? Who could make hospitals literally in your lifetime obsolete? They were Jesus, and that's exactly true. The word got out. If you've got someone sick in your family, you get them to Jesus, and they will be healed. And you know what John 6 says? That's exactly what took place. Matthew records everyone who came to Jesus on this particular occasion was healed. That not only wore the crowd out, that wore Jesus out. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, okay, these folks need something to eat. Guys, get them something. Philip says, Lord, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Not the answer Jesus was looking for. Andrew, ooh, 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 I got it. I saw a little boy over there. He's got five loaves and a couple of fish. Would that work? That'll work. Brings the five loaves and a couple of fish, and in a moment, Jesus transforms a boy's sack lunch into a meal for thousands of people. And they are stunned. Not only are they fed well, there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers that are garnished from that. The crowds are going nowhere after that. They literally camp out overnight to see what in the world Jesus is going to do next. They wake up the next morning, and he's gone. He's gone. Their meal ticket's gone. This new wonder guy is gone. They don't know really why or what's up, but they do find out where he is. And as a crowd, they move around the lake to go find him in Capernaum. And when they get there, they've skipped breakfast and they're starving. And Jesus is in on their desire not to necessarily find him, but find food. And he says to them in verse 26, you're looking for me, but not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. I promise you, Jesus can always recognize an admirer over a follower every time. He knows they didn't go to all this trouble. And sacrifice in time and effort and energy to be there for him. They've come for dinner. And he wants to know, will he be enough? And so he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's a gutsy move. Because Jesus makes it clear in this particular sermon of his that this is about following him, not being fed by him. And the crowd's got to make a decision. Is he enough or do they have to have more? And here's what they decided, many of them, in verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's not good. Or is it? 
What impacts me about this particular section of Scripture for Jesus and what it's taught me about leadership is this. Jesus doesn't chase after them. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, how about an um, ice cream social service? What do you say, guys? He doesn't change his message to suit them. He makes it clear that he is more truth-sensitive than he is seeker-sensitive in just a few words. And it seems to be okay that his popularity just goes, boom. But Jimmy, don't numbers mean success? Not necessarily. If you're looking to build a crowd, yes. But if you're looking for committed followers, not necessarily. It makes me smile that this message comes on the heels of literally our largest crowd yet since I've been here last Sunday. Over 480 people assembled here to worship with us. What a, what a great number of folks. But you need to know, this early into the journey together, that does not thrill me. It just doesn't. It's already been established in America. If you make something attractive enough, exciting enough, and cheap enough, crowds will flock to it. Jesus isn't interested in John 6 in a flock. He's interested in followers. And that's an entirely different set of two people. Cheap and easy are rarely descriptors of something that's valuable. And following Jesus Christ is priceless. Tabitha's my youngest daughter. She's 22 years old. She was neither cheap nor easy. She has a job in Lubbock that she loves. But at the moment, there's not a man in her life that she loves. And that really has her bummed. She is not married, but she'd really like to be. And so let's just decide, I'm going to help make that happen. Imagine that I take out an ad in the Lubbock newspaper. And I even secure some prime billboard space. I have t-shirts made where I'm practically begging those who are possible suitors to come and choose my daughter. I even have some attractive incentive gifts for the first date. Doesn't that cheapen who she is? Doesn't that sound like whoever would take her out would be doing her a favor? I'd never do that. I love her too much. She is valuable to me. So here's what I am doing. I've set the standard pretty high. There will be lie detector tests, <laughs> background checks. There will be private investigators hired to follow potential applicants. References will be checked. Cameras installed in the living room and the bedroom. I want it to be clear to anyone who wants to marry my daughter that they had better come committed, not just in love. Not just an admirer of my daughter, but a committed lover of my daughter. Now, some of you are thinking, are you really doing that? Well, I don't have cameras in the living room. <laughs> I am asking you, church, forgive me if ever my preaching or my leadership sounds like I'm trying to cheapen Christ and his bride, the church. 
If ever my efforts to reach the lost becomes desperate enough to make it convenient and comfortable to follow Jesus, there is nothing further from the truth. It is not convenient and it is not comfortable to follow Jesus Christ. But listen to me, there is life in Jesus Christ. I hope with all of my heart that Kerrville and all of the surrounding areas see enough of life in these Christians here and in the other Christians in our city that literally there's not enough of these buildings, church buildings, to hold them all. But I really don't care about the crowd. That's not my concern. My concern is committed followers of Jesus Christ. And I think the body of Christ the world over has far too many satisfied admirers in it that it has committed followers. And if you're not sure who you are, you will be after eight weeks. I promise you. And so I'm asking you, please, even if you're not here, tune in, listen to these messages. Not because the messages are great, but I think the truths that they make us look at, especially if we consider ourselves followers, are essential. Because there is one section of scripture in Matthew chapter 7 that chills me. It's a picture of the judgment. And you've got folks who've shown up there. And you've got some pretty good admirers who've done some pretty admirable things. And he tells them, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want to be in that group. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not anywhere near being an admirer or even a follower, you're just saying, hey, I'm here investigating. Great. We are so glad that you're here and you're going to be so glad that you're a part of this series of lessons because I promise you, you'll be surprised at the requirements Jesus has to become a follower. They will surprise you. They may be very different than the ones that you are familiar with if you know anything at all about what it means to be a follower of Christ. For a moment, I want to point you to someone who is anything but an admirer. On February the 10th, 2006, I was in control of my life, and I liked the direction of things and the way they were going. I had a thriving chiropractic practice, two sons and a devoted wife. On February the 11th, everything changed. I was heading out to my hunting cabin where I planned to meet up with friends and hunt wild boar. And as I drove along, I could see the effects from the severe drought that we had been experiencing. Everything seemed to be dried up and dead. By the time that I reached the road heading into the cabin, it was dark. As I turned and missed the road, I ended up five feet in the thick brush. I tried to free my truck by putting it in forward and then reverse repeatedly. The friction from that somehow ignited the brush and within seconds the truck was a large torch I reached for the door handle to escape but the electrical system burned out and I was locked inside seconds later the windows exploded I don't really know what happened after that and I have no idea how I got out of the truck but the next thing I remember is walking down the road to the cabin telling myself over and over don't stop keep going don't stop Keep going. When I reached the cabin, my friends thought I was wearing some kind of three-dimensional leafy hunting outfit, but it wasn't camouflage. It was shredded, charred skin. A medical flight helicopter took me to a burn unit 
where I was told that I wouldn't have much of a face left. I would probably lose my sight as well as the use of my hands. God put an absolute halt on my life, he writes. I was so busy being successful, I was on such a fast track that God was part of my life, but he was not the most important part. He was not on the throne of my heart or at the center of my universe. I was. I do not believe God caused the fire, but I believe God allowed it because he wanted to get my attention. Like a parent who tries to get through to a child, God grabbed me by the shoulders and sat me down and said, I want you to listen to me. And that was the beginning of a spiritual awakening in my life. Over the next four years, the doctors amputated seven of my fingers. I couldn't use what was left of my hands for even the simplest of tasks. But the doctors said that there was nothing more they could do. Then my wife, Cindy, asked about the possibility of a hand transplant. That began a time of waiting and testing and prayer. We spent countless hours reading the Bible and praying together. And finally, the day for my double hand transplant arrived. Twenty surgeons, three anesthesiologists took 17 and a half hours to attach my new hands. Many people have pointed out that it was a miracle that I didn't die in the fire that day. That's true. But in a very real way, I did die in that fire. The man that I was died that day. And God gave me a new life where I'm not in control anymore. But I've turned the controls over to him. I am not in charge of my life anymore, but I have submitted everything to Jesus. These days, my wife and I constantly pray to be used by God in any way that he wants to bring him glory. It may sound crazy, but I would rather have gone through all of this pain and suffering and all of these challenges and have the relationship with Jesus that I have now and continue down the path that I was on before the accident without that relationship. My name is Rich Edwards. I am not a satisfied admirer. I'm a committed follower. If you're an investigator this morning hearing that, you go, no way. 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 You just don't know the Jesus that I know that's in this book. You may know of a Jesus, but not Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to invite you to follow him. Not settle for just being even the most enthusiastic admirer. Lord God of heaven, please help us not in this generation to settle. Please. We want to leave a legacy, not just of faith, but of life. Help us not to be comfortable. Not another day. We're just being a satisfied admirer, a fan. We want to be followers. Please lead us down the path that we need to go so that we truly are Christians, followers of the living Christ. And we ask that humbly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, serious? You just said, that's right. That's who I want to be. All right, game on. For the next eight weeks, we're going to look at what that requires. And I pray that you show up and I pray you come prayed up because we need the Lord's guidance on this. Pray for me. These will not be easy lessons to hear. 
but I think they will impact us on our journey to be what Christ has called us to be. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing here, but here's who I'm inviting you to. The one who's alive. Who refused to stay dead. That's why we follow this Christ, this anointed one, because he is alive, seated at the right hand of God, waiting till God blows that trumpet and to take his followers home. If you want to get in on that with Chase, you come find me. And if you realize already before we even start into this session series, I'm satisfied admirer. You don't even have to try to spell it out. I know I am. And I'm going to repent starting now and learn how I can be a committed follower. You come find one of our elders. We'd love to pray with you about any and everything you brought to this gathering of Christ followers today. Let's stay in church. Let's praise him.